And let's open into Revelation chapter 2 in your pews. It is on page 1089. If you do not have a Bible, we encourage you to take that Bible home with you. And if you would like a, a nicer Bible or a more personalized Bible, we can certainly get you one. Um, and uh, we want to make sure you have a copy of God's Word. Revelation chapter 2, we're going through the seven churches of Revelation. Remember that Revelation is written to the local church, which means whenever we read Revelation, which we'll work more on interpreting the book itself on Sunday evenings, uh, it must apply to, to the church broadly and to the members of the local church. So today we want to look at the church in Pergamum. You will have to spell that right on your quiz at the end of the service. That is a M-U-M at the end. It's like the way the Brits say mom, right? It's mum, not M-O-M like I was doing all this week, and Microsoft did not approve of it. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at verses 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we ask you to open our eyes and our hearts and our mind and our uh, mouth and, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ. Your word would transform us. We would hold fast to the gospel despite internal or any, or any external threats. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. May you be seated. In 1799, a German theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher, you better spell that right on your test as well, he published a book in German entitled On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultural Despisers. This work, although most even within the church, is, or is unfamiliar with it, has played an influential role in a lot of the issues we deal with today. In fact, Schleiermacher is significant because he is known as the father of modern theological liberalism. In the book, he, he argues that Christianity needs to get with the times. It's written to the elite of German society who were leaving behind Christianity, and Schleiermacher, who was among the elite, academic elite at least, was concerned with that trajectory. So, so his argument is, you elites, don't panic, don't leave, because we're going to get the church caught up. And so for the last 150, 200 years, uh, theological liberalism has been essentially an experiment to get the church to compromise, to get the church to accommodate as a means of saving the church. The problem with that, of course, is that in its effort to save the church, theological liberalism has actually destroyed the church. In fact, statistically, the churches declining the fastest over the last 20 to 30 years have been those who have abandoned foundational theological doctrines of the faith. Yet, though that is true, 
that accommodating uh, our, our, our theology with the culture will in the end destroy it. And it's tempting for us to think that is a liberal problem. The truth is, this is an increasing problem even among our theological churches. In fact, what we have here is a church guilty of accommodationism. What we have here is a church in New Testament times within a few decades of Christ's resurrection itself going down that same trajectory. In order to save the faith, they think they must first compromise it. Let us start here with this letter with the celebration. Celebration here, verses 12 through 13. Now, like all the letters, right, the Pergamum letter opens with an address to the church's messenger. Yours may say angel, but angel is a transliterated word meaning messenger um, with a brief description of the writer, right? In each of the seven letters, Christ introduces himself very differently. And here you see what he says. It's the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, chances are, if you know your Bible, when you hear two-edged sword, your mind goes to Hebrews 4.12. We'll come to it here, here in a minute. But remember that John is writing within the context and let the book itself tell you what he means by this. The word sword shows up throughout the book of Revelation. Let's look at them as briefly as we can. In chapter 1, we see here Christ is described as having a sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. The same imagery we have here in chapter 2. By the way, you see sword imagery in verse 12, right? We would see there, and verse 16 of chapter 2, both in the same letter. In chapter 6, we see, and out came another horse, bright red. His rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. He was given a great sword. Notice the people don't have a sword. It is the rider on the red horse. Later in verse 8, we see that I looked, behold, a pale horse, and it's... And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over forth the earth to kill with sword and with famine. It's fascinating. When we talk about the pale horse, we leave out the sword part quite a bit. Chapter 13, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call of endurance of the saints. Chapter 19, uh, from his mouth, this is Christ, comes a sharp sword with which to strike the nations. And finally, in, later on, it says, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him. So let's just pause here. You're thinking, okay, that's, that's most of the instances of, of the word sword in Revelation. Who really cares? Well, let us be clear here that every time sword shows up in Revelation, it is in the context of judgment. It is in the context of action. Now, sometimes that can be a good thing, Right? You're watching that, that movie in the theaters, remember them, and, and the, the, the good guy's family, they're, they're about to, to be taken captive, and, and they're screaming, they're fighting, but, but, but they're losing the fight, and what happens? The guy with the sword is what happens, right? He shows up at the last instant. There's Captain America, whoever it might be, and you're cheering, right? Because the guy with the weapon shows up. It's a good thing that the sword is there, Right? That is why later in chapter 19, Jesus shows up with a sword and we celebrate Christ has come. At the same time, there are others who use the sword and it is bad news, whether it be the four horsemen or the beast we saw in chapter 13. It can either be good or bad. But one thing is clear, the sword in Revelation is never ceremonial. It is ominous. It is dangerous. Judgment comes with the sword. Now, the only time... A two-edged sword is found in Revelation. It is associated with Christ, and it is associated with judgment. So what we need to see here, remember that, that 
John is writing to real churches under threat, we see that to them it appears as if Caesar and Rome has the sword. In fact, the Bible would describe it as having the power of the sword, like in Revelation 13 or even Acts, when when Herod uses the sword against one of the apostles. But in reality, what Christ is showing his church of Pergamum is that it is he who has the greater sword. It is he who rules, reigns, and judges with the sharp one is the literal Greek there. The two-edged sword is called the sharp one. It is he who rules and reigns. And of course, it proceeds out of his mouth. And this reminds us of the writer of Hebrews, doesn't it? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and attentions of the heart. There's the same imagery, different author, but same imagery. And so it's fascinating, isn't it? The two-edged sword of Christ doesn't come from his sheath. It comes, rather, from his mouth. It is the power of the gospel. It is the power of the word of God that is the power over the nations. So the reminder here is that Christ is the divine judge over his nations, over his church. And it is the gospel wherein the power lies. Forsake the gospel. and the Judgment will come down. And this will either frighten us or it will encourage us. In fact, notice not only does he have the two-edged sword, notice verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That language is striking, isn't it? It isn't unique here because we saw last week, I believe it was, with the church of Smyrna. And there in verse 9, he used the phrase, the synagogue of Satan. So, so Smyrna has a synagogue of Satan and Pergamum has the throne of Satan. Now, I don't know which one is worse, where he sits or where he worships. I have no idea, right? I don't know which one is worse, but they both sound pretty bad. So, so what, but what we do need to see here, I believe, is a collaboration of both Jew, synagogue of Satan, and Gentile, the throne of Satan. That is to say, all the nations seem to be against you. All your neighbors, all the world seem to be against you. This is animosity towards Christ. It isn't limited to racial tension that we saw Jew over here, Gentile over there. But rather, this is a human issue. The Pergamum believers dwell at Satan's throne. That is to say, they are called out at the epicenter of ungodliness and wickedness. Now, you need to know Pergamum is known, at least at this time, for three things. The first is they had a really nice library. They had a really nice library. Now, to us, that's... Well, okay, they like to read. But really in the ancient world, that's not really what what we mean by this. You didn't just get your library card at your local library and use it to to, to read books on your Kindle, right, in all hours. That's that's, that's not, 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 not what you have here. Libraries were rare, and they were epicenters of academia and the in the intellectual world. Pergamum had the second largest library in Rome. The largest was Alexandria, and Pergamum came close to surpassing them. Alexandria had an incredible library, and there is Pergamum uh, 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 rivaling even theirs. Perhaps this gives us uh, some insight into why Jesus emphasizes a sword comes from his mouth. It's his word. The second thing they were known for was pagan worship. You probably already knew that, didn't you? Every city at this time was known for pagan worship. If only I can think of a nation today where everywhere you go, if you just open your eyes, you're going to find pagan worship. 
If you think of a nation like that, well, will you just send me a, an email, maybe a fax, something like that. You can help me out here. But what you need to see is Pergamum is the religious center for three gods. I'm going to mispronounce one despite my best efforts. The first is Zeus, the god of sky and thunder. The other is Athena, the god of war. The third is Aclepius, I believe is how you say it. He is the god of healing. Now, they all, all three of them enjoyed lavish temples in Pergamum. Uh, Athena and Zeus, theirs were right next to each other. But one worth noting is the third one to the god of healing. It was located on an ancient spring that was believed to provide uh, miraculous power of healing all sickness and disease. We get a hint of this in the Gospels, right? Remember that there's, there's a guy who's blind and crippled and he can't get into the spring because they believe that spring would heal. Well, that was a common thought over the ancient world. There's sort of like Lazarus pits for you comic book fans. But, but Purim had like one of the most major ones, the most famous one. And so they built this temple at this spring for the God of healing. By the way, I, I meant to put the picture of it up here. You know what the, the, the symbol of this God of healing was? Was, it was a snake wrapped around a staff with wings at the top. That sound familiar? Anyone ever see an ambulance before? Anyone ever walk into a hospital or see any sort of medical symbol that is a staff with wings on it with a snake wrapped around it? It comes from this Roman deity, the god of healing. It may also give us some insight into the emphasis of the dragon in Revelation. Notice here you have a throne, Satan's throne. Later we see a dragon, a serpent, a snake upon that throne. And so you're going to see, just for example, chapter 12, verse 9, that uh, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, right? Connecting it to Genesis 3. And well, what is it that you're going to find? Symbols of such a snake here at Satan's throne. Perhaps that give us some, some insight. What you also need to know about these gods is they weren't just known as Zeus and Athena and whatnot. They were known as Zeus Soter. Athena Soter. Soter is the Greek word meaning savior. They walked around seeing Zeus as savior, these gods as saviors. Well, this is a problem for Christians, isn't it? There is no Savior under heaven, yet Christ who is risen from the dead. Remember that the Romans despised that the Christians would not recognize their deities. It's almost like how the world today, our Pergamum, despises us because we will not recognize their identities. So they're known for their library. They're known for their pagan worship. They're also known as the center of imperial worship. Pergamum was the first city in the Roman Empire to erect a temple to a living Caesar. Now, ancient, the ancient world, virtually all the major uh, 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 empires, would erect such temples and, and whatnot for deceased kings, pharaohs. So the pyramids is perhaps the, the best example of this. All of them did this. And the Romans did this, right? They would do it for Julius and whatnot. But Pergamon was the first to do it for living Caesars. And in fact, in the city, at the time of this writing, they had at least one. It was to Augustus Caesar. The second was to Trajan, which I think comes later, but I could, I could be wrong. It gets confusing because they're all assassinated by their mothers or something. It gets kind of confusing. The third was Servetus, who comes later. So if the temples promoted false saviors, the imperial cult promoted false lords. You see, the classic slogan was, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians couldn't say that for the same reason they couldn't say Zeus is Savior. Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is blasphemy to the 
Pergamum leaders. I think commentarian William uh, 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 Kistemacher is right when he says, if in Pergamum, Christians daily face the pressures of a pagan society, if they refuse to accept an invitation to attend a feast in honor of a pagan deity or in honor of the living Caesar, we would add, they would not only be shunned, but they would lose their jobs or businesses. People would call them outcasts, not fit to live on this earth. But for faithful believers, there is no one higher than the Lord, no human law that takes precedence over God's law, and no teaching that should supplant the gospel. Does this sound familiar, American in the 21st century? Change the language. Use different terms. Does any of this sound familiar? I don't know. Turn on your TV. Don't do that, but in theory, go home, turn on your TV. See if it will. But notice what Jesus says. Though you live at Satan's throne, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Well, that is, that is praiseworthy, isn't it? Despite all the paganism around you, despite all the pressures that are upon you from the culture and the world around you, what is it they say you heard fast? In fact, you, heard, you stood fast to the point of death, and Jesus highlights a man. We know nothing about him. Who is this Antipas? I don't know. I don't know. But one thing I know about him is he was executed. He was martyred because he held fast to his name. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that man you should imitate. You see, as we saw last week, it may be God's will for you to suffer, but suffer for the glory of God. Christ is celebrating as he does Stephen and the other martyrs. Here is one who will fast to my name. Christ calls him his faithful witness. And he is set up for the rest of us, even here today, as an example to follow. You see, you see in Pergamum, the proconsul of Asia Minor, uh, his throne was there, if, if I can use that language. Much the same way that Pilate primarily dwelt in Jerusalem and Caesarea Philippi and those sort of places, so too the proconsul, the governor, lived in Pergamum, which means when they brought all these Christians in Smyrna, like we saw last week, and Ephesus and other places, they would bring them to Pergamum, and it was there they would punish and persecute and execute Christians. That is where Satan's throne is. And, and he says, you have held fast despite all of that. You just like Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan himself dwells. That great dragon, that, that serpent. Yet from the beginning, Christ reminds us, it is he who has the double-edged sword. And it proceeds from his mouth. Didn't hold it by his waist, but when he speaks, it will cut soul. Well, that's the celebration. That's a good thing. Wouldn't you like that to be your testimony here at this church? Wouldn't you like to say, hey, you know, Jesus wrote us a letter. You know what he said? You guys have held fast to, to our name, to, to my name, despite the cost, right? That, that'd, be, that'd be nice. What we don't want is what he says next. We go from the celebration to the criticism, verse 14 and 15. Notice when he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So despite holding fast to the faith amid a dangerous context, they were in error. And the error described here is theological accommodationism. They held fast to the faith, yes, but they had corrupted that faith. Notice the language there, verse 14, the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, the Nicolaitans, it is assumed these are, these are essentially the same thing. We met the Nicolaitans in the Ephesian church, so we don't want to go into a lot of detail there. But you'll notice John tells us that in referencing the story of Balaam from the book of Numbers, they do two things. First is idolatry. The second is immorality. 
idolatry and immorality. Now, Jesus praised them for facing off against external threats, Satan's throne, where Satan dwells. But now he, he says, you have failed to fight against an internal one. I was trying to think how to illustrate this. And, and, and then, then I, I thought of one, right? Because it's summertime. They were wearing sunblock, but they were ignoring, they were ignoring that infection, right? On the outside, they, 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 they had everything prepared. We're good. But on the inside... They were, had some very real problems. Now, if you don't know the Balaam story, let me tell you briefly. He was a false prophet who was hired to destroy the Israelites when they were marching through the desert between Egypt and the Promised Land. And the goal from Balak was the, to, to bring a curse down upon them. Well, he tried that three times and it didn't work. God protected them. So he came up with a different plan. He said, if, if I can't do it externally, maybe I can seduce them. So what he did was he utilized the Midianite women to seduce them, and he seduced them with, with Canaanite pagan gods. And so their identity as Jews was corrupted by seduction. And what Jesus is saying here is you are falling for the same trap that's been used over and over and over again. On the outside, you talk a good game. On the outside, everything looks good, but, but just a brief look into it. What do you find? Seduction, compromises, a giving in to temptation and a justification of that temptation. In fact, the word used there in verse 14 as a stumbling block is a fun one. I think I can illustrate it for you. It is literally a trap where one pulls a string so that the stick is moved. It describes the stick so that the bird or whatever you're catching is caught. It's a Looney Tunes cartoon, basically. He said, what has happened is you've been lured into a trap and Satan's throne, where he dwells, he has pulled the string and you are caught. Balaam, that is Satan, has put a trap, a stumbling block for you. Let me ask you, if Christ were to write a letter to the American church right now, what would he say? Can I give you three things I think he's saying? They all start with I, so you know it's inspired. The first thing I think he pointed out, now to the Pergamum church, it was, it was idolatry and immorality. I think the first thing he pointed out to us is, um, is ignorance. Go up to the average Christian, or at least who claim to be a Christian, you ask them, can you find the book of Genesis? How many of them could tell you? I picked Genesis not because we're studying on Wednesday nights. You should join us for that. But because it's the first book. How many can? How many have read any of the books of the Bible? And can recite back to you what, what the story was or what, what the contents were? Ignorance is a severe problem in, in the average church. I've told you about a biography I read of Lincoln. And I've mentioned this before, so I'll be brief. But it basically made the point that in Lincoln's time, in pioneer country of Kentucky and Indiana and Illinois, he didn't go to church. Why? Because you were in pioneer country. There, there weren't enough churches uh, around, and the population was low. You would have to travel for miles and miles and miles and miles. In fact, you ever preach or preach once a month. <laughs> you wish. Why? Because of the, that very same reason. But people in pioneer country knew the Bible. Now we have churches on every corner and no one knows the Bible. Ignorance. We can't defend the faith. We can't live consistently with the faith because we don't know the faith. And how many of our churches we give bumper sticker slogans that make us feel good rather than the gospel that will redeem and sanctify? Ignorance is a very severe problem that we have here. 
We are more than willing to throw money at organizations, but we personally refuse to be spokespersons for our faith because we don't know our faith. Boy, we are shallow. The second, I think, in, in connection with, with Pergamum, that is idolatry. John Stonetree argues that there are five great idols of our age. They are sex, they are self, they are state, they are science, they are stuff. It's all starts with an S so you know it's inspired by God according to my seminary training. Sex, self, state, science, stuff. Now, do any of these things, do any of these things show up in the church? Yeah. Yeah, there is a compromising, there is a corruption, there is an accommodationism. No wonder the message of Christianity is confused with right-wing politics, self-interested messaging, and hypocritical moralism. We have bought into the pagan idols of our age. The third thing I think Christ would mention to us is immorality. Ignorance will empty a church when hard times come. Immorality will mute the church when it finally finds the courage to speak. How many more Christians must fall before we take discipleship and godliness seriously? This is a good time to plug our small group starting in July. How many more souls will feel isolated in their struggle with sin when the church should be the source of help for such fighters? When when we stop accommodating our morality to fit an increasingly confused and wicked society. You see, the temptation is there, right? If we can just compromise here, they'll leave us alone. It never works out that way. Well, we come finally to the command. Verse 16 and 17. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon. And war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Just as he commanded the Ephesians to repent of their coldness, so Christ calls on the Pergamum Christians to repent of their compromising. Repentance is more than a mere apology. My bad, I'll do better next time. Repentance is a cleaning out of the closet. It is a removal of all stain and filth. Get right, Jesus explains, because this right here isn't good enough. And he warns that if you do not repent, I will bring with me my sword. It's a final warning. Why? Because the gospel condemns them and the gospel will judge them and the gospel will, will, will destroy them. Because there's no longer a church. If the church does get his act straight, Jesus himself will bring it to a premature end. And notice here, this is Christ, not to the world, but to the church. And notice also, this is a call to communal repentance. He's not just saying that one Sunday school class, each of y'all need to repent. That one family that's bringing in all the change, you need to repent. No, no, he's saying church, members of the church, the corporate body of believers in Pergamum, y'all must repent. Think about it. He is arguing here that accommodationism is more severe in the eyes of Christ than persecution. He's more concerned with the church being accommodating the gospel to fit worldly wisdom than he is about the nations trying to destroy the church by killing its members. It's a bigger problem than Jesus. Think about it. 
Persecution often does purify and it will even expand the church. So the early church fathers will say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That is to say, the more you kill us, the more churches we plant. Accommodation, on the other hand, is a seduction that destroys the church. Much as it will destroy a marriage, so it will destroy a church. History has shown, and modern liberalism has demonstrated, that false teaching empties churches and relegates Christianity to irrelevance. That's the irony of the, of the theological liberal experiment. In its effort to be relevant, it proves just how irrelevant uh, Christianity is. But when you stand and say, Christ is supreme, Christ is lording, Christ is truth, you find you're always ahead of the time because you already know where all this is headed. If you want relevance, hold fast to the sword that comes out of his mouth, the gospel and the word of God. Now, verse 17 raises some interpretive challenges, doesn't it? What is the, the uh, um, hidden manna? What is the white stone? What is the new name written on the stone? One thing you need to note here, and I can't explain all of that, but one thing you need to note here is that just as each letter begins with Christ introducing himself in a unique way that fits that church, so the conclusion uh, is, is unique to that letter, making the same argument that, 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 that fits that church, right? So, so, so you got your Bibles in front of you. Look at chapter 2, verse 7, there, there at the end. He says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Notice there's tree of life, paradise of God. That's the imagery. Go over to, to verse 11 of chapter 2. We saw this last week. The one who conquers uh, will not be hurt by the second death. You know, remember that, that the uh, Smyrna church was dealing with persecution. They're being wiped out. They're being killed. To, to, to the Pergamum church, it's a white stone and a hidden manna and a new name. To the Thyatira church, actually, let's skip to chapter 3, verse 5. This, this, this for the sake of time. Chapter 3, verse, verse 5. This is the Sardis church. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life, right? Uh, uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 12. We see um, uh, the next church. It says, um, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I'll write on him the name of my God. Finally, chapter 3, verse 21, we see another description. The one who conquers or overcomes, your translation may say overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquer and sat down on my father on, on, on his throne. So you see, it's different imagery, but he's making one point. You will patiently endure to the end, and no one will take away such redemption. Whether it's described as you won't face the second death, or you will eat of the tree of life, or, or you will eat of the hidden manna, the manna that, that satisfies forever and ever, on a white stone that cannot be chiseled off, whatever the description might be, he's all saying the same thing. Overcome, fight until the end, keep persevering. And he's saying to, to them, do not compromise the faith. If you do not compromise, your name, your new name, will be carved in stone in the new Jerusalem. Boy, isn't that good news? Why then do you care about the messaging coming from the world that you think you have to be kept up with? Why? When you know your name is written on stone in heaven. Why would you do that? There is a hidden manna waiting for you. So what do you care if you are starved to death by the nation that hates you so much? You can eat what they cannot. Well, I know we're going to get out late, and that's okay. You'll survive. I want to highlight four temptations for the conservative Baptist church in America of accommodationism. Four of them. And they'll probably get me in trouble, and that's okay. 
The first is we choose relevance without righteousness. Relevance without righteousness. This is a real problem. Christians today, we have compromised maintaining the faith so that we can convince others we're cool just like them. This is the problem with the modern youth group experiment. Youth groups didn't exist 150 years ago because adolescence didn't exist 150 years ago. That's a separate conversation we'll have another time. But what we did was we said, well, this is the system of the world. Can we have a system just like it? And unless we keep young people entertained, they won't stay in the faith. Can I tell you what happens? If you're not building a foundation with young people, they're not going to stay in the faith. By the way, we're doing that with adults too. Because if you notice how we don't treat people like they're adults until their 30s in the world, check our policies, guess what we're doing in the church? Scared to death to trust young adults with responsibility and accountability because we refuse to see them as adults. So we see young adults acting like young children, and we pat them on the back and say, that's okay, buddy. You'll figure it out when you get to be my age. We have no depth. In an effort to be relevant, we've compromised righteousness. We don't hold each other accountable. We don't want to offend somebody. We don't want to give off the wrong impression. Out goes the righteousness that is ours in Christ by faith. Secondly, I believe we have chosen consumerism without Christ. If I picked on youth groups, let me pick on the modern worship movement, which I, I love modern worship, love, love it all. If it exalts Christ, what do I care? What, what instruments it comes from or who wrote the song? But what we think is that people won't come to our church unless we have really nice fog machines and stage lights. And by the way, dear church, you're guilty of this. How many of us here have jumped from one church to another because we are consumers, not worshipers? I like this church because they offer me this. That's what you do between Lowe's and Home Depot. I like, I like this organization over here because they give me this. That's what you do with fast food. Why do we do it with the church? We've become consumers rather than Christians. And what is left out of that is Christ himself. Christ doesn't care about your personal preferences. He cares about his glory being known in his church and among the nations. Crucify your personal preferences. You be the solution to a struggling church, not the problem. Don't be a consumer. Be a Christian. Thirdly, we have chosen religion without the resurrection. Christ declares all things new when he walks out of the tomb. Christ declares neither legalism nor libertarianism. But having grown up in, in the Bible Belt South, I, I, can, I can experience that so long as we keep our traditions, so long as we have our religion, so long as we have our system, so long as things stay the same, we're going to be okay. So we hold fast to tertiary doctrines. We hold fast to things that don't really matter. All the while, we're losing the things that do matter. How many of us will stomp on our feet at things that don't matter while our neighbors are marching to hell? Because we choose religion over the resurrection. That is accommodationism. That is exactly what the throne of Satan wants us to do. It will empty our churches. Finally, if I'm not in trouble already, we choose patriotism without the Prince of Peace. Whether you're on the left, you're on the right, or you didn't learn the difference in elementary school. We are all guilty of this. We are choosing our view of a nation 
our view of government, our view of the world over Christ. Think about it. You are more than willing to share your faith, that is your politics, more than you are to share your faith about Christ with your neighbor. How tragic is that? I do get frustrated. I can sit with a handful of pastors and we're more likely to talk about vaccines and masks than we are about the nations in need of Christ. Why is that? You want to know why we're so divided as a nation? Because we worship politics. It's our religion. In fact, chances are people will come into this church. They will judge our orthodoxy, not by what we declare what the Bible clearly says, but by what political stance we take publicly. That's a problem. That is a problem. People will not say, who is this Christ we hear of? But rather, how are they going to vote in November? That's a problem, church, and you should be engaged in that sort of heresy. We choose patriotism over the Prince of Peace, and we wonder why there is no peace. Because the source has been left behind. You see, we may not be a liberal church with progressive theology, and that is good. That doesn't mean we're not just as guilty as the church of Pergamum. The temptation is to accommodate to the world. As a result, we lose the church. Let us not fall for that. Well, over 100 years ago, the founder of what we now know as the Salvation Army, he was an Anglican pastor by the name of William Booth. He was asked by a journalist coming into the 20th century, was the end of the 19th century, so about, about 120 years ago. He was asked, well, what do you fear in the upcoming century? What do you fear for the church and Christianity? What are some of your concerns as we approach this, this new century? And he, he gave what I believe to be an iconic answer. He said, quote, The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and a heaven without hell. His fear was that Pergamum would consume the church. Let it not consume ours. Let us pray in repentance.